Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. This is episode 75, if you're keeping score. Part three of my conversation with Bill Schnee. Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. Thanks for listening today. So the reason I did episode 74 the way I did, it was only 30 minutes long, but I wanted to give the Beatles and Bill Schnee uh, their due because it's not just everybody that gets to work with the Beatles. Those guys were so talented and so huge when it came to music, pop music, and what music became. I just thought they deserved a standalone episode. So today is part three of my conversation with the one and only Bill Schnee. I have such a deep appreciation and admiration for guys like Bill who have spent their life reaching such high heights in their world of expertise. It's amazing. If you know someone that needs a good book, buy Bill Schnee's book. It's the, the reason that I feel so strongly about it is guys like him will never exist again. There's Bill and then there's a few others that have had these remarkable careers in music. But once these stories have happened and been passed on, no one's going to have these careers again. The world has changed. It's not as special. It's not as unique. Technology is never going to be what it was. They're never going to take us from the 60s to the 2000s like these guys did. I just believe in celebrating them and honoring them every chance I get. So today, part three of my conversation with Bill I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Bill, so let's get to the assumption that a lot of people make about you because you worked on so many classic albums during the 70s. Talk about the misperception of you and your relationship with Steely Dan. Uh, I became a fan of Steely Dan uh, pretty early on. And then, um, and I had, you know, like some of my best friends, Michael Omardian and Jeff Beccaro had played on uh, some of their records and told me about their maniacal ways in the studio uh, <laughs> going after perfection. Right. But one day their producer, Gary Katz called me and said, would you like to record the next Steely Dan album? <laughs> I said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I was, I, I, I jumped at it. Yes. But I was a little concerned because I, as I mentioned earlier, right. I, I like to move fast. My creativity is, you know, shoot from the hip. Let's just go. Yep. Uh, I, 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 cause I'm, I have the tendency like a lot of people to overthink. And I don't think that that that's, that's not the best <laughs> for me in creativity i'm i'd much rather shoot from the hip and if that didn't hit it shoot again right right so uh but i was very pleased they uh, gary told me when he called he said now i'm gonna warn you uh we're gonna it'll be a revolving door of drummers oh wow so there's gonna be a lot of drummers so you're gonna be getting a new drum sound every few days and i said that's fine huh. i'm not afraid of that right and so uh he said where would you want to record it and i said uh, I was thrilled that he gave me the option. Right. And I told him it's a little studio on Hollywood Boulevard called Producers Workshop 
that's behind the mastering lab. Wow. And I don't know if uh, he or the boys ever went over there to take a look at it or not. I didn't hear if they did, but just based on my word, that's where we did it. I couldn't have been happier. Wow. I was thrilled with that studio. It, it wasn't the biggest and nicest or whateverest, but it was one of the best sounding consoles, a homemade console, which is why when I would build my studio years later, one of the many reasons why when I built my studio, I built my own a console as well. Right. Because homemade consoles tended to be extremely simple. And in analog electronics, less is more, meaning the less electronics you have, the more natural sound you get. Hmm. So that, that was why the main reason I loved that studio. The acoustics in it were pretty good. It's a relatively small studio. It's not a big studio at all. Hmm. But that, that's where we did the tracks. I was very pleased that the sessions were nothing like what I had feared. Right. Meaning, first of all, they... It was very different than uh, as in any record they had done. This was all professional musicians. Yeah, the band didn't do anything. Uh, Walter would later replace one of the bass parts, but himself. But but other than that, on the tracking dates, they were all top professional musicians. Right, they were organized with chord charts uh, done by Larry Carlton off of the demos that the boys did for every song yeah and we started at two o'clock and we never went super late into the night it was just you know it was very professional hmm. it was a no drug zone <laughs> which i don't know for a fact but i would think that was for walter's sake who went on to have problems with yeah with substances sure uh and it 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 was just wonderful that way right okay so you mentioned larry carlton now Take all of those great studio musicians that you worked with back in the day, Steve Lukather, Larry Carlton, Jeff Picaro, all of those guys. Nowadays, there's five producers and 11 songwriters on every song, and everybody's fighting for credit. So compared to how it is today, if those studio guys you were in the studio with back then, do you think if they were recording now that they would be fighting over songwriting credits or over producing credits or anything like that? No, and it's very unfortunate uh, because for for, the, <clears throat> for their sake, uh, one of my favorite things about the way we were, we did a lot of sessions. Now I'm jumping away from Steely Dan for a second to answer your question. Sure, um, because Steely Dan was different. You can reel me back in. I'll talk about that. But so many sessions back then that were done with this incredible group of musicians that came in the 70s after the wrecking crew that was the right. that there's a of course a great documentary about um the, the musicians in the 60s in hollywood that played on so so many records yeah but the, the big difference between them and this group that went through the 70s into the 80s was that the, by and large, the the ones the wrecking crew played the notes on paper that were given to them. Right. Whereas I was a part of many many records where the the arrangement is made by these incredible musicians playing with and especially off of each other. Right. So that uh, somebody like Lukather, who always would have good ideas, Ray Parker Jr. Even you know same thing. Uh, that you know what about this? What about that? You know, and sometimes uh, the the producer's job would be to, you know, field the kind of like the way you 
people think the Beatles might have been uh, for George yeah, Martin to have to uh, field great ideas and to pick the best one. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was in lots of sessions, some of them under my direction, some of them where I just engineered, where, you know, these guys would make the record come together on the spot. Yeah. And uh, that was a very unique thing that ha had never happened before. And of course, now, as you point out, with the way records are made with, you know, one person in the room, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, uh, it, you know, you never get that anymore. Right. OK, one more quick question about what we're talking about, and then we'll get back to Steely Dan. Uh, did Larry Carlton chart those out? Were they chord charts or were they notated? Primarily, I think primarily notation, because... Every song, almost every song, the the guys had a piano bass demo that they had done. Ah. And uh, in most cases, almost all the cases, there were no lyrics. Sometimes there might have been a la-la kind of thing right. of where lyrics were going to go. Yeah. But the, the musical bed, the, the tracks, the chord changes, uh, were done at home. Wow. Or wherever they did it. And... You know, on more than one occasion, uh, one of the members of the band said, you know, that feels so great. Why don't you just overdub drums on that? And, you know, you, you'll have a track. Yeah. And I really, I know that that could have happened. And they would say, no, Donald, every time. Donald said, we'll get it better. Uh, but, yeah, it was, they, they had it down. And as far as I could tell, he had not done, he had really notated much more than interpreted Larry on the chord charts. Right. Okay, so before we move on, in your expert opinion, how much would you say the studio players on those Steely Dan albums had to do with, how much did they have to do with creating the sound of the group overall? Let me put it this way. Every day on those sessions, I would take a cassette home, pop it in the car on the way home, right. and listen to the one or two songs we did that day. Yeah. And uh, I remember by the second or third day i was going oh my gosh what is this I, you know it's not blues <laughs> it's bluesy sometimes it's not pop but there's some pop elements that you, yeah it's definitely on the jazzy side uh but i what is this <laughs> you know all and i all i could say was i don't know what it is the only thing is it's incredible i know that right they were so unique and so creative and so different i don't think anyone will ever be able to live in their orbit in that style no no sadly and then what's what's even weirder to me is that 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 record gets made mm -hmm. and for the next record you know you think that well let's let's do it again <laughs> but <clears throat> but they changed everything they went to new york to do it uh... they, and they didn't do the uh they were still obsessed with the best kind of drummer yeah. or drum kit for whatever. Yeah. Uh, so instead they went on a, a different, totally different route, right. uh, which ended up with, the, you know, their Roger, their engineer building the first drum computer to, to, to uh, make a perfect quote unquote drum track. Right. And uh, <laughs> it's just kind of, kind of odd. And of course that album Gaucho was, plagued with problems yeah uh including walter's girlfriend ODing and walter being hit by a taxi crossing the street oh no <laughs> and arguably one of the worst things uh for donald was the the song 
that for that album that they absolutely were wild about being erased. I don't know if you know about that. Right. Just from talking to you about it, but go ahead and share that story. It's crazy. A song called The Second Arrangement that they absolutely loved. Right. And the second engineer erased three-fourths of it. <gasps> and, and when Roger got, uh, sorry, Donald got to the studio, uh, when they told him, he didn't respond. He just turned around and walked away. No. <laughs> went home. Uh. And then I read an interview years ago where it said that was the worst day of our recording life. Wow. <laughs> uh, worst day in the studio, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here, here's a really fun side note of things lately is, uh, uh, so, you know, I moved to Nashville four years ago. Yes. And I've been, been completely shocked at the level of musicianship. And I don't mean country musicians either. Right. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, this uh, guy named Scott Sheriff. I know Scott. You know him? Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah who's a believer, calls me up and says, uh, it turns out that I think it was his idea to record that song, Second Arrangement. You can find it on YouTube. The, there's a terrible cassette version with a lot of no highs and a lot of wobble uh, of, of the Steely record, which wasn't finished. It was in process when it got erased, but it was they already had backgrounds on it and stuff. It was coming along. Wow. And you can hear how good a song it is. So Scott decided to record it. Hmm. got some guys and in that modern yes they were all no two were ever in the room together right. but with you know it, you can do great things you know i don't want to right belittle it you know you can do great things that way yeah uh but you're just never going to have an accident and some of the best things in life are accidents that happen in, in recording with musicians but whatever anyway he they recorded it and they got michael omardian who played on uh, some of Asia, including the song Asia, they got Michael to play piano on it. Oh. Scott played the electric piano. Hmm. John Hammond, you might know him. Yeah, played yep. played drums on it. And, and uh, they asked Michael, "Do you think Bill would mix it?" And he said, "Here's his number. Call him." <laughs> and so he called me. He called me, and I mixed it. And oh my gosh, it is really good. Oh, that's great. And. And I think it's one of the most commercial songs Donald ever wrote. Wow. And you can even understand the what he's trying to say lyrically pretty easily, <laughs> which is not anyway. So we uh I mixed it I mixed it and came out and then they're they're uh, <clears throat> making a one of those videos for YouTube where little squares each person sure. playing their part or faking it really, but uh, to to show who played what. Uh. So about a, a week or so after I finished mixing it. There's a guy that wants me to do an interview that I told him I would. I've known this guy for quite a while. Someone that read my book and sent me an email last year saying how much they liked it. And uh, he's a mastering engineer in New Mexico. And he sends me an email about a week after I finished the second arrangement. And he said, there's, uh, I read a, uh, I saw an interview yesterday with Donald Fagan where he's talking about you. So here's a link to it. So I went to it, and it's this guy that's hit me up for an interview. Wow. And uh, he mentions my name, Bill Schnee, and Donald says, oh, how is Bill? And he said, he's fine. Uh, and then Donald says, uh, he's the best recording engineer we ever worked with. Uh, and my little heart, you know, just started beating very fast. And I went, that does it. I've got to send him the song. Wow. And so uh, I, I got 
from his drummer, I got uh, an email address. He didn't have a phone number. I got his email address and I sent it to him. Yeah. And I told him, you know, I moved to Nashville and this and that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, there's great musicians here. In fact, listen to, to, I hope this doesn't bring up too many bad memories. <laughs> I didn't hear from him that day. But that night I was watching a movie and all of a sudden I screeched at my wife to stop it, stop it. What's wrong? I said, I just realized they never released it. <gasps> we can't release that without permission. Oh, wow. And uh, so I, I took my phone out and I emailed Donald again and I said, just that. I said, I just realized you guys never released it. Uh, so there's that. Yep. And he wrote right back and he said, good to hear from you. The song sounds good. Whoever did it, go ahead and release it. Oh, amazing. So be on the lookout for that. And, Absolutely. Uh, I don't know who it's going to be by, but uh, sure. we're, I, we're talking about making a name for it. And, you know, because it really is such a good song. It needs to it needs to be heard. Yeah. And it's right out of the uh, I mean, it's it absolutely sounds like something right out of Asia. Oh, my gosh. At any point, did they try to recut it? I'm surprised they didn't. They did try. Ah, they tried. Okay, they did try a couple of times, ah. and they never, they could never get it as good as what they had. Wow! And it was one of those psychological things that can sometimes happen. Yeah. It was probably, it was probably still great. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if if they didn't think so, so they scrapped it, which is a real shame because, like I said, I think it's one of the best songs he ever wrote. Wow, that's that's incredible. Okay, so let's segue to a band you worked with. But let me go back a ways. Let me go back to 1982. I was in college, and there was two albums in 1982 that became kind of like anthems for my sophomore year in college. One of them was the Imperial Stand by the Power, which had produced by Bill Schnee on the back cover. The other is Toto 4, and it was so awesome when I got older and realized the reason those old Imperials albums sounded so good is you had half of Toto on those Imperials albums that you produced. <laughs> do you ever look back at that? What do you think of when you think of Toto um, as musicians and working with them in the studio? Well, here's the thing. Uh, early on in life, in fact, uh, I, I met these wonderful musicians uh, it was just, I just texted uh, last week with Steve Lukather's birthday <laughs> and uh, he, I texted him and he, he wrote back and said, he said, ha ha, 65, I was 19 when I met you. <laughs> That's great. Uh, That's great. I, I think he's incorrect, but I'm not, I don't know because <laughs> I'm sure I met, I know I met him through Jeff. I met Jeff first, somebody, yeah. somebody that knew, you know, I'm a wannabe drummer <laughs> and, uh, and drums are very important to me yes. in pop music. So I spent a lot of time developing ways of recording drums and making it work right in a record. And so I've always gotten along very good with drummers and some, some friend of mine, I remember telling me, he said, you, have you heard Jeff Carl? I went, no. And he said, you're going to like that guy. <laughs> and so I finally heard him and yeah, I liked him. All right. <laughs> we became really, really good friends. And, uh, I know he knew yeah. what I thought of him, but funny enough and sadly enough in a way, it wasn't until he passed away and about, I don't know, five, six, seven years after he passed away, I was at a party with his brother, Steve. Yeah. And Steve introduced me to someone 
and he introduced me as Bill Schnee. He was Jeff's favorite engineer. Oh, that's and awesome. Once again, my little heart. <laughs> well, sure. You get an endorsement like that from the Percaro brothers. I mean, that's what is remarkable because you've got all these amazing musicians around you who are rock stars. But I know to them, they knew how good you made them sound. And it's like they looked at you the way they would look at each other. It's like you were a rock star to them because of how you made them sound. Yeah, I was, uh, Jeff and I became really good friends. And a lot of, you know, wonderful things came from all of that. Yeah. Why, why one, of the, one of the many things is my wife's OBGYN. <laughs> I got it from from susan from his <laughs> wife uh, when we were when we got pregnant uh, and we had visited a couple of doctors and she, my wife didn't like I, I, either of them and, <laughs> and then he told me as jeff told me a story about his doctor and we tried him and <laughs> we were with him and, until we left la that is so funny all right so you hear all kinds of crazy stories about this guy's first take guy second take at the most how many takes did you guys do on those Toto records? Well, of course, if you're talking about Jeff, that would be the first take. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it was always amazing. You know, he, uh, I, he and I have a, one thing and a similar thing. And why <laughs> I, I, he's a lot of times I can't go as fast as I want to go because I've told you I, I like to go fast, but you can't. I'm, you know, if you. If I'm in control of the session, I can push it along. Sure. Uh, and whatnot. But if I'm not, I can't. And so sometimes it's a feeling of foot on the gas and foot on the brake. And I know that's how Jeff was sometimes because he would figure out, uh, not always the first take, but early on, he's, he, he goes to the heart of the matter. He would find it right away. And you got to give the other elements a chance to catch up. To, come to the party and I, like i said on those great sessions where it would go from one person to another try this try that right it, you know it just depends it would just depend some things come easy some things don't right uh you know, you know that's the deal with with dealing with a bunch of guys together <laughs> yeah uh whereas the people now doing it on their own it doesn't much matter does it nope. because they're alone they can take as much time as they want to get it the way they want it yeah but, you know, it was always just, uh, I said it earlier, it's just such an incredible joy to watch these guys yeah. uh, work with and off each other. It just, you know, an amazing thing. Hmm. Uh, I, I was always upset, and believe me, they were too, <laughs> about the fact that a lot of the, the uh, reviewers would pan them because they were such good musicians. I'm ridiculous. Yeah, you know, and... Uh, which which is quite unfortunate because it's you know there's a lot of sometimes you just got to get your what's in your head out and listen to what you're listening to right instead of you know it's, it seems like it was a preconceived notion that if you're that good a musician you can't have a good band right so the band can't be that good yeah exactly um, but they did spend you know uh, this is another thing that's so sad about the music industry today yeah you know it's it, it took them a while. Look, they, they opened with uh, Hold the Line, yeah. you know, their first hit on their first record. Right. And But they really hadn't found their voice as a band, as songwriters. Uh, we find this many times that with bands that I've worked with. You know, uh, Pablo Cruz, uh, I, it was their third record that I did that had their the first hit, What You're Gonna Do. Wow. Wow. Um, uh, 
Uh, Boz Skaggs had several records before Silk Degrees. Yeah. Three or four records before Silk Degrees. Yeah. Huey Lewis, uh, you know, really the third record was sports. It, it, it takes time for artists to develop and to find themselves. And that doesn't exist anymore. Right. You know, today it's horribly sad because it's hard enough. It's near impossible to get a record deal yep. for young bands anyway. And the ones that get in and, and, and then it's only because they, they know that you've got, you know, 4 million viewers <laughs> right. on, on social media. And, <laughs> you know, they know they're going to, Someone's someone's going to care about the records so, right. because they they can't begin to take somebody that I mean that's been gone for years where they would take a brand new artist and try to you know push put a record out there and make it successful. Sure. So it's just it's it's really sad to me that you, you know artists today have to develop themselves on their own. Right. Okay. So you you know through the musical styles changes from the '60s into the '70s, '80s, and so on you also had to deal with technology changing just at a breakneck speed. What was the biggest challenge for you in dealing with technology? Digital. Wow, digital. Yeah, yeah. I, I started on analog. I learned on analog. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything was, you know, and, and early digital, I, I went kicking and screaming <laughs> into the digital age because early digital didn't sound good to me. Nope. And still doesn't. Nope. And that includes that includes the CD. Absolutely. But you can high quality digital, and it's like so many things. Technically, we we have another one going right now called Atmos. <laughs> it's it's not that <laughs> it's almost a bad word for me. Uh -huh. it, you know, it's it's too early. It's, yep. You know, the CD came out too early. You know, after the CD, then we started figuring out that better sampling rates, bit rates converters filtering all these things got improved to the point where now you can make it some phenomenal digital recordings but 30 years ago not so much right what was your first taste of digital so i i did i went kicking and screaming in the sense that i wasn't into it I and mean, of course we started with digital tape machines and i didn't put one in my studio because a because i didn't like it but most, more importantly, there were three different ones, and they weren't compatible. And some people thought this one was better, and you know the best one. And some people thought that one was the best one. And so I just let them rent the machine if they wanted to to do that. What a great solution! If they want gear you don't have, you just let them rent it, and they can pay for whatever they want to use. That's brilliant. Um, speaking of your studio, tell the story about Toto and your studio when it was first opening. So when I built my studio, uh, it was coming to completion in 1981. And uh, we built, as you mentioned earlier, we built a console, but it wasn't quite ready. So I rented a little 16-input board from a guy named Howard Steele that built very good-sounding electronics. We had this little console in there for me to basically shake down the room. So as soon as I got it hooked up with headphones working and whatnot, I called Jeff and I said, can you bring the band over sometime to check out the room? They all knew about it. They had all come and visited while it was being built and so on. And so he indeed one night brought them over and uh, set up some, I, I was so nervous. I remember, what am I going to hear? And as soon as I heard the, as soon as I heard the, because they, I should back up and say that the main reason that I built a studio at all was to get a room 
with the sound. I grew up in the 70s where because of multi-track, eight-track, when eight-track came out, in the, right. like in 70 or whatever, yeah. uh, leakage became a bad word. So all the rooms were built dead boxes so that the sound of one instrument's microphone wouldn't get to another instrument's the sound of one instrument wouldn't get to another instrument's microphone and unfortunately in dead rooms like that uh, even the mics that are on it if there's any kind of openness and distance you don't get anything anyway it's all dead right so i wanted a room where you know you have isolation if you want isolation but when you want the room to speak like for the drums it speaks yeah and so that night with uh, with basically Toto in there, which which they were what we did were grooves. They what they did were grooves that would ultimately become Toto Four. Oh my gosh! Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, but it was it was a very special night. It was a lot of a lot of back slapping and <laughs> up and down. They they we had a bottle of champagne. Uh, how fun! And we christened a place. Wow! And it was it was a fun night. I'll bet. Hey, I got to ask you this. I just thought of this. This I meant to ask you this about two days ago. Um, all those cassettes you had in the car listening to sessions on your way home, do you still have those tapes anywhere? Of course not. <laughs> Sadly. No. Uh, no. Right. No. Oh, I wish. Uh, oh, do I wish. Those would be worth millions of dollars. And to some people, uh, six words you'll never hear anymore. I wish I had a camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. But I, that was another thing about me. You know, I, I and I think it was because the, the, the basic insecure person that I am, I would have never dreamt of asking for a picture with somebody. Sure. Uh, I was just insecure that way and whatnot. There, there's a lot of engineers, a lot of engineers that live for that. And uh, I don't put them down for it. I, I wish I had a little more of that. Sure. Wish I had a lot more of it back then. But no, <laughs> no. Yeah. That was the biggest, biggest problem with my book was the fact that the publisher would not put a picture in the book that we didn't have the photographer sign off on because of uh uh, have you done the behind the scenes stuff on the computer yes absolutely it's amazing the photos are incredible there's the 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 best pictures right you can sure you hit the thumbnail and you get to see the pictures that i had like with the beatles and yes and the the few that i have of those kinds of things right including my band I, I was so ticked off that I couldn't put the LA teens picture on there yeah. in, in the book. Right. Right. When you buy the book, you get a key to go on my website and, yep. and read the 60,000 words that got edited out. <laughs> just tell them, say, you just have never did a book with someone that's got so many crazy, great stories. I need a 2000 page book. Yeah. That's what I said. <laughs> All right. So I, you tell a few stories in the book that are just funny that you really didn't have anything to do with. Tell the Jeff Picaro, Ricky Lee Jones story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I Actually, I think Lukather tells it in his book, too, I think. Uh, yes, he does. And, of course, we all have slightly different versions. <laughs> but even though Jeff would have told, well, no other musicians in there would have told it to people, too. But I'm sure Luke heard it from jeff like i did uh basically one day uh, i'm in the studio and jeff popped in with an album of a new artist named ricky lee jones and he had played on one song on the album right and he he said you got to dig this so we put it on and listened to the first side of it and uh wow she really is special isn't she he said yeah 
So for her next record, uh, he, as I said, he only played on one song on the first one, but now he was going to play the whole record. Right. And the studio that they were doing it in, he was in a booth, uh, a drum booth, and she was in her own room. Okay. And as, as the session gets started, uh, she said, hey, drummer, <laughs> uh, which would not go down very well with Jeff. Jeff was a, a very respectful person. Sure. And he, you know, he thought, I mean, he, he, he didn't look for glory or anything, but he would expect to be called by his name, not, hey, drummer. Yes. You know, we're in a, we got five guys here. You know, is it too much to ask for you to, you know, call me by my name? Right. And it was, hey, drummer, da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> so it came along to this, they're, on, they're working on the first song, and she's talking about the drum fill. She wants a certain kind of drum fill going into the chorus. Right. And so he goes on, and he, he does one, and she, she stops it. No, 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 no. I need something harder. <laughs> okay. So they go through it again, and <laughs> he plays a different fill. And she said, no, that's that's I, not good. I Finally, she says, third time or something. Finally, she says, how about this? Doom, tucka, doom, boom, doom. Da, da, da. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, doom, tucka, doom, boom, boom. She goes, yeah, and play it hard, really hard. <laughs> okay, I got it. So they, he counts it off. They start going. He gets to that. He played doom, tucka, doom, doom, doom by taking his sticks on end and stabbing them <laughs> through every tom, ending up on the last beat with both sticks stuck straight up out of the snare, got up and walked out. Oh, he killed his own drums. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I can't believe, I can't believe she told Jeff Picaro what to play. I had a, uh, I had a similar situation uh, with Julio Iglesias <laughs> quite a few years later. Okay. Uh, where we, uh, I was in my studio doing tracks for a Julio Iglesias album and he didn't show up for the first two days. We were doing a song a day, so we had two songs on the third day when he showed up. And he came in the studio, and he listened to them, and he managed to find something, quote, wrong with both of them. So he just wanted to be there when it went down. Right. So we were going to redo them. That's all there was to it. So we get started, uh, and uh, the band is playing, and he's in the control room, and he goes, Engineer, turn up the bass. <laughs> Okay. You talking to uh, me? Yeah. I guess I'm the only engineer here, so it must be me. And uh, then, you know, engineered. Uh, that's too loud. <laughs> Something, you know. And that went on all day. No. And then the next day, started off, same thing. Engineered, da-da-da-da-da. And then uh, about an hour into it, he went, that's a really good drum sound. And I went, thank you. A little while later, he says... The piano is really beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Bill, why don't you do this? Uh, <laughs> so I guess I had to earn having my name oh spoken. My I don't know. But that's how it went down <laughs> in any case. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is so crazy. All right. So let's segue to this um, because, like I said before, we have so much ground to cover. Did you ever have a manager that represented or negotiated for you? No. Okay, so then let's get to the Mark Knopfler story from your book. Would you tell that story? Uh, I was a huge Knopfler fan, Dire Straits fan. In fact, when I was producing Boz Skaggs, uh, I was in San Francisco, 
and when on their first album they were touring behind their first album and uh boz and i went to watch this guy play guitar because you know he's one of the top on anyone's list top 10 most people's list top five best guitar players in the world sure uh with that very unusual style so um been a big fan and one day i get called to come and uh i want want you to mix an album and i was thrilled it was uh uh, one of the soundtracks that he did, Princess Bride. Wow! And after that, we we hit it off really well. And so then, I went and to England and mixed uh, uh, another soundtrack that he did. And then I went to England and mixed a band, uh, his pub band, he calls it, and some <laughs> of his mates in, in London, with you know, kind of rootsy, folksy kind of sound, yes, whatnot. And then he, uh, then he did an album that I mixed with Chet Atkins, which is a phenomenal album. Uh, that's, of course, one of his heroes. Yes. And um, that's a really great album. And that one we did in uh, my studio. It's the only one we did in my studio. And uh, we were one of the things I loved about doing it in L.A., was we went out to lunch. We didn't bring lunch in. I always like to go out. I like to get out of the studio and then come back. But right. in England, we always ordered in. So anyway, we we're going to lunch and we just getting ready to walk into this restaurant. And he said, I'm going to do another Straits record <laughs> and I want you to do it with wow. me. And I said, really? Great. And I said, why aren't you using, and here's a blank. I can't think of his name. The guy that did Brothers in Arms. Neil Dorfsman. Can't think of his name. Uh, and he said, um, that's my decision, uh, is to have you do it. And that is none of your concern. <laughs> I went, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I hear you. So, uh, we talked about it a bit and he said, it's probably going to take, you know, we're going to take our time with it. So it's probably going to take about nine months, Wow, six to nine months yep. and we're going to do it in England. And I went, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> And I got home all excited, tell my wife Sally about it. And as I'm telling her, as the words are rolling out of my mouth, I realize I'm talking to the mother of my two very young children at that time. <laughs> and and uh, I went, uh, wait a minute, I can't leave my wife for nine months. Sure. Uh, plus, I have a studio. Uh, that I, you know, that I manage, if nothing else, <laughs> I, it can get along without me, I think. But, uh, and I, it, I sat there and I figured out, wait, I'm going to have to do something different. So I talked, called his manager mm. uh, the next day, and I said, just that, you know, the only thing that makes sense is for me to move to England. Wow. Uh, for the to you know get a flat in London and. Uh, with my wife and kids yeah, and uh, like that. So to do that, I really need, I really need uh, to either co-produce it or at least get uh, a reasonable point back end deal on it. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, let me talk to Mark. Right. And he spoke to Mark and he called me back and he said, yeah, Mark doesn't want to do that. He really wants you to do it, but he doesn't want to do that. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sorry. Then I, I I can't do it. Right. Tell him I'm very sorry, but I can't. I I just can't do it. Right. And 
So a day or two later, manager calls her back and he says, I've got an idea. Uh, said, you know, here's the thing. He really wants you to do it. <laughs> but he only knows you as an engineer. Hmm. So what if you came and just did the tracks? Shouldn't take more than two, maybe three weeks at the most. Just come and do the tracks hmm. and you know, show him what, you know, how your involvement could help things. Yeah. And maybe he'll change his mind. <laughs> I thought about it and talked it over with my wife. And I said, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. So that's what I did. I left her for whatever it was, two and a half, three weeks. Uh, and, and the other thing I really wanted to do it because he had asked when he told me about it, he said, and I've asked Jeff to play drums on it. Oh. And of course that was always, you know, me working with Jeff was always a good combination. So, right. Uh, I, I really wanted to do it. So I thought this, it, even if it doesn't work out, this is worth absolutely worth doing. And hopefully it will work out. So we got there and we started doing the tracks. And about the second day, we are, you know, the first day was just getting set up and used to the headphones and this and that. We cut the first track and then the second track. We had two tracks and we w went up to the tea room, the break room, where they always have tea and little cookies. <laughs> They're so refined over there. Yes. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and Mark is sitting there with his cuppa, and I walk up to him, and he says, Bill, it sounds really fantastic. I'm thrilled. And I said, good, Mark, I am too. He said, I sure hope you finish this with me. And I went, I sure do too, Mark. <laughs> and uh, that would happen again about a week later. <laughs> Same exact thing. Right. You know, to, oh, I sounds bill this this track is just smoking i love how you did this and that uh, great i sure hope you finish it with me bill i said i sure do too mark <laughs> and uh and the day came when uh he uh, could we finish the tracks he said we're going to take a couple of weeks off and we're going to start on overdubs right and so i'm saying goodbye and i i told him uh, it was difficult to interject too much, to be honest, for him to really see what I could have done. But I mean, were the tracks different because I was there? Yeah, they probably were for sure. Yeah. So whatever. But and then I was I left and I don't think this was the problem. I really don't. But I told him, I said, you've got a really good album here, Mark. Yeah. The one thing I want to say is that there's not another there's nothing of uh, money for nothing. Yeah. There's nothing as straight rock as that. Mm -hmm. uh, you might consider thinking about one more song for the record because mm. the fans are going to want, you know, yeah. that's the way it usually works. I mean, and, you know, he is a true artist. Uh, you know, he is a real, real artist. Yes. And real artists don't want to paint the same picture over and over. Yeah. So, you know, you can tell, you listen to his body of work over the last uh, 35 years and and you see how he has evolved right as all real artists do and so uh you know i understand that he didn't want to make the same record at all but i thought he should just have one thing to sure with a little heftier shall we say <laughs> right anyway i went home and waited for the call and the call came and it was unfortunately it was the same line he really wants you to finish it with him <laughs> but he's he's not giving in on either point oh. and i said okay well i i unfortunately i just can't do that to my wife right. you know it's so 
Well, I'll tell you what, I admire you for, for standing your ground because a lot of people just at that point, they're just fighting to get their way more than fighting for what's right. Well, let me tell you that, you know, I guess I can make a joke like, you know, there's a problem being a Christian sometimes. And, <laughs> and that's if, if it really is God first, family second, and everything else, including that silly job you have third. <laughs> Uh, I, I did the right thing. Absolutely. I'm very sad about it. I really would like to have finished it, but whatever. And then the funniest thing is, well, I thought I could trick myself. <laughs> he got the guy from Brothers in Arms to mix it. <laughs> see, I, for, see, I thought for sure he would call me to mix it, at least. Right. Because I'd been working with him so much. Right. And in fact, at one point, he called me and said, uh, I'm coming to America to put backgrounds on it. Uh. And uh, I, I want you to to do them. Ah. And uh, Amy Grant's husband is who? Oh, Vince Gill is who we're looking for. Vince Gill. Uh, we're going to do them with Vince Gill. Ah. And I want you to do them. I said, great. <laughs> so he came and we did them. And it was really funny because that, that's when I uh, officially met Vince. And I was able to tell him, you know, I turned down producing you. He was in a, he was the new guitar player singer in the group pure prairie league that had had a couple of hits in the 70s wow and uh uh i i i told him i said you know your record company sent me this some demos and they said it was the greatest guitar player singer in the band you're gonna love them and blah 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 and i said indeed i heard five songs with your incredible voice and great guitar playing but i didn't think the songs were any good and he said you were right they weren't <laughs> he said i got in the he said i got in the band and they said have you ever written any songs and he said well i've written five and he said but they were all terrible and he he said they were all terrible and i said wow well things by this point you know he was already a major country star i said well, things certainly did change, haven't they? <laughs> right. And indeed they have. He's just the sweetest guy. That's what I hear. Yeah, that went great. So I thought, you know, we're on track for everything. And then nothing. <laughs> Next time I heard from Mark was when they were touring for the record wow. on every street. And he called me up in L.A. and he said, I've got tickets for you. Huh. He said, I want to thank you for doing my two favorite albums of my career. Oh, wow. This one and the, the pub band. They couldn't be two more different records. But right. uh, I went, thank you, Mark. And that's that. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, yeah. And so one of the great things, one of the greatest things about uh, writing the book yeah. was, this will sound funny. <laughs> one of the greatest things was. My computer, I bought a brand new laptop at a certain point and the hard drive went out. No. And of course, I work with computer every day, so I know you back things up. Ah. Uh, the whole thing was supposed to be on the cloud and it, for whatever reason it wasn't, but I backed things up. Unfortunately, the last backup I had was two months earlier. So I lost two months of work and it was right when I was writing no. the Nosler chapter. No. As I recovered <sighs> from the loss and got back to work on it, right. I looked up Knopfler and again on the internet to start to spawn my memory again. Right. And I saw that he was coming to uh, America for a tour and in Los Angeles. Yeah. So I got his contact. I wrote him and told him I want to see him when he's here. And he he wrote me back a beautiful, beautiful letter saying, absolutely. Da, da. And we got together and it was, you know, like old home week. Wow. And, uh, that's awesome. We, 
we uh, had a wonderful time together. His hotel was on the beach, and we had a wonderful time eating our oatmeal. A couple of older guys having their oatmeal, uh, <laughs> talking about them. And then uh, he got us, you know, my family and I, some great seats that night at the, his concert. And afterward, he he doesn't like backstage as much as, as I don't. Right. And it was great because instead he had just a little get together at the hotel for about. 10 people wow. and uh, so we got to spend a wonderful evening with him thank you so much for listening today thank you to Bill Schnee for being my guest what a remarkable life he has lived next time part 4 it just keeps getting better with Bill Schnee <laughs>